we're in Micah, and last time we finished up chapter 4, and actually I want to back up to 4.13. I didn't give you a complete answer because I was spacey and forgot it. So let's go back to Micah 4.13, and then we'll go on into 5. Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make your horn iron, and I will make your hooves bronze. You shall beat in pieces many people. I will consecrate your gain to the Lord and their substance to the Lord of the whole earth. Obviously using Jerusalem, daughter of Zion is Jerusalem, to uh, judge the earth. And last time Angel asked me about the significance of the metals. And I gave you an incomplete answer. So I will give you a more complete answer tonight. Iron, of course, it's representative of strength, sternness. So when it says, for example, he will rule them with a rod of iron, the idea is that the ruling will be harsh and complete. In Daniel, where you have Nebuchadnezzar's vision of the statue, or his dream, where you've got the four metals, and the head is gold, the chest is silver, the torso and thighs are bronze, and then the legs are iron and the feet are iron mixed with clay. What that represents, obviously, is you have decreasing order of nobility of the metals. And, of course, he says Nebuchadnezzar is the head of gold, and then the next one will be Medes and Persians, which will be silver. The next ones will be the Greeks, which will be bronze, and the final ones will be the Romans, which are iron. And then iron mixed with clay is iron that isn't as strong as it should be because it's got an admixture. So that's sort of iron. Bronze, on the other hand, represents judgment because bronze in biblical speak is the metal that can withstand fire. So the altar in the temple and the tabernacle are both made of bronze. So the idea is it can withstand fire and of course you come before the altar to sacrifice and for judgment. Also, you see bronze in the serpent that is raised in the wilderness. When the Israelites are in the wilderness and God sends fiery flying little dragons among them, then Moses prays and God does not take the dragons away. What he does is he instructs Moses to make a serpent out of brass and lift it up on a pole. And whenever anybody is bitten, they are to look upon the serpent raised up and they'll be healed. And of course, all sorts of interesting places that goes, but the biblical symbology is sin is being judged, if you will. So that is bronze and iron, which is a more complete answer than what I gave you last time. Now we're on to chapter 5. By the way, I'm reading from New King Jimmy tonight. I normally read from English Standard, but I kind of like New King James better for this particular passage of Scripture, so I'll be there. Now gather yourself in troops, O daughter of troops. He has laid siege against us. He will strike the judge of Israel with a rod on the cheek. Now, daughter of troops, one of the things that at least my commentary says is being spoken of here is the siege of Jerusalem under Nebuchadnezzar. That's a commentary, that's not scripture. So do with that whatever you like. 
the idea of striking the judge of Israel with a rod on the cheek is by way of humiliation. So the idea here is that the judge of Israel, the king, will be humiliated, and of course they are. So that's the metaphor there. Now we go to verse 2, it says, but. Now, what's happening before is all talking about Jerusalem. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be a ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from old, from everlasting. So this is obviously a reference to the birth of the Messiah. By the way, the Jews also see it as a reference to the birth of Messiah. I mean, this is both Judaism and Christianity see it the same way. Of course, those of you who remember your gospel stories, when the Magi come to follow the star, they swing through Jerusalem, which freaks Herod, because Magi would not have been three old guys on camels. And by the way, three is a folk myth that is not biblical. So there is no number mentioned. It's because of the three gifts. In other words, there are the three gifts that are brought. Hence, we have the three kings. It's not biblical at all. Three gifts are biblical. Three kings are not. So they would have been traveling with a heavily armed escort. They would have been quite a few of them. And for them to come out of the east and say, we are looking for the king of the Jews, it freaked Herod, because he was the king of the Jews. And one of the things that happens very frequently, of course, is when the existing king finds out the existence of a pretender or a rival to the throne, one of the things that the existing king very often does is has him killed. So the idea that Herod would want to know where this guy was born is royalty 101. Once the Magi have left, Herod consults with the Jewish wise men and said, what's going on? And they say, well, the Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem. Everybody knows that. So that was the report that he got back. And of course, you all know the story. He inquires as to when the star appeared and he gets a time frame and so then he goes down to the Bethlehem area and kills every boy who was born in that time frame. And of course, you all know the story. Yeshua and his parents had booked it down to Egypt, so they weren't there. Herod, of course, didn't know that and got all of the boys of the age around the birth of Messiah and killed them all. So the idea is obviously he's getting rid of any potential rivals to the throne. So in here in verse 2, it says, To be a ruler in Israel whose goings forth are from old, from everlasting. Now, I quite frankly don't know how the Jews interpret that. I interpret that as his pre-existence. At least to me, from my Christian perspective, that's what that says. I don't know off the top of my head how the Jews read that. I just don't have that information. The comment was that 
If you didn't want to believe that Yeshua was the fulfillment of this, you might be able to say, for example, that he was prophesied from of old. That's a fair interpretation. I have nothing better. All right, now what we're going to do is shift. Remember, one of the things that happens in Micah is you shift speakers and you shift time frames, often with no warning whatsoever. Now, remember when Micah is writing. Micah is writing at the time of the Assyrian invasion. So during Micah's lifetime, the northern kingdom gets destroyed. He is a contemporary of Isaiah, for example. So here in verse 3, Therefore he shall give them up until the time that she who is in labor has given birth. Now, English translation says he refers to the Messiah. Well, at the time the Assyrians take out the northern kingdom, Yeshua is not even a gleam in his mother's eye. His mother is still hundreds of years in the future. Now, again, don't get me wrong, his going forth are from old, so the idea that he has dominion even before his birth is perfectly sound. And of course, one of the things we see periodically, especially early in the Old Testament, is you see pre-incarnate appearances of Yeshua. So you have the angel of the Lord at Jericho, you have Melchizedek, various instances where I believe Yeshua shows up before his birth. So I don't have any problem with he shall give them up, referring to the Messiah and the Assyrian invasion. He shall give them up until the time that she who is in labor has given birth. Now I'm going to read to the end of the paragraph, which is the beginning of verse 5, and then we'll come back and unpack this. So therefore he shall give them up until the time that she who is in labor has given birth. Then the remnant of his brethren shall return to the children of Israel, and he shall stand and feed his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall abide. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and this one shall be peace. And then the second half of verse 5 is when the Assyrian comes into our land, when he treads and so forth. But let's unpack this first. She who is in labor has given birth has a couple of different meanings and uses. In Revelation, where it's talking about the woman and the dragon, remember you have a woman who is preparing to give birth and the dragon is crouching at her feet to devour her offspring. That pretty clearly is talking about the birth of Yeshua. And of course, you all have heard of the Matzorah. Matzorah are the constellations of stars. The stars are given for signs. And the constellations that people recognize are the same worldwide. They call them different things in different languages, but the arrangements are universal, human, recognized. And what they do is they tell the story of the gospel. So you have the virgin who is waiting to give birth. You have the dragon who is crouched at her feet, waiting to devour, and, and so forth. I'm not going to go through that whole thing. But the idea here is this gospel has been known ever since the creation. And 
several good books on it if you want to follow that through. The one who's giving birth here in Micah, I don't think is Mary. I think it's Israel. So Israel is giving birth, and what she's doing is she is bringing back his brethren. Remember, one of the things about Yeshua is he is a brother to us. That's one of the big deals about his incarnation. He becomes our brother. And of course, we, being his brethren, become heirs with him of God the Father. If you want to go through that in detail, it's all in Hebrews. So, verse 3 again. Therefore he shall give them up until the time that she who is in labor has given birth, then the remnant of his brethren shall return to the children of Israel. So what he's talking about there, I believe, is the regathering of Israel at the end. That's what I think is being said. And then he shall stand and feed his flock. In other words, he is going to rule on the earth. I think we're talking about millennial reign stuff here. In the strength of the Lord and the majesty of the name of the Lord is God, and he shall abide, for now he shall be great. Now then confused me the first 20 times I read it. Now refers to the future. In other words, it doesn't refer to the time of Micah's writing. So in the future, now he's going to be great. You understand the way that I think the construct works? For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and this one shall be peace. So he will be the prince of peace, he will rule over the world, and he will regather his flock as all part of the prophecy. Now, going to the second half of verse 5. When the Assyrian comes into our land and when he treads in our palaces, then he will rise against them seven shepherds and eight princely men. Now, biblical geography. Back in Genesis, God divided the nations and he gave them each a place to live. So that region thereafter is called by the name of whoever was given that land after Noah, after the flood. So you have Gog and Magog, or the famous example. Well, Gog and Magog are in, I believe, Caspian Sea region, and they aren't Gog and Magog anymore, but there are still people in that region. So in the future, when you have wars, What's going to happen is when Gog and Magog make war, whoever happens to be occupying that region, and right now it's one of the stands, you know, Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, I don't remember which ones. So it's one of the stands up there. At the end, when the people of that region come down and make war, in prophecy it's talking about Gog and Magog. So Assyria, at the time that the prophecy is being written is basically northern Iraq, southern Turkey, eastern Syria, that region, you know, the Fertile Crescent. So when the Assyrian comes into your land, that could be the Iraqis, that could be the Iranians, that could be the Turks, that could be the Assyrians as they exist now. And 
he treads on your palaces, then we will rise against him, we being Israel, will rise against him, the Assyrian. So we will rise against him, seven shepherds and eight princely men. That is a metaphor. Six things the Lord hates, yea, I will give you seven. It's that kind of a saying. So seven shepherds, yea, I will give you eight kind of thing. In other words, I am going to raise up leaders who will be able to lead you in repelling this invasion. So I don't know that there are literally going to be seven shepherds and eight princely men so much as there's going to be enough leaders here to do the job. My comment was that not only seven and eight is a metaphor, but you also got shepherd and princely men, which could be pastors and commanders. I have no idea. I don't know the answer to that. Verse 6. They shall waste with the sword the land of Assyria and the land of Nimrod at its entrances. Now, remember what I said earlier about how God labels regions of the world. Nimrod was the king over that region after the flood. His capital city is Nineveh. Nineveh doesn't exist anymore. But the idea of the land of Nimrod at its entrances is talking about the area where the Assyrians are at the time of the writing, which was given to Nimrod after the flood. So verse 6, They shall waste with the sword the land of Assyria, and the land of Nimrod at its entrances. Thus he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and when he treads within our borders. So I am seeing this as an end time war. The people coming down from the north, which is the traditional invasion route into Israel, and they come down and the Messiah will raise up an army with commanders and they will go chase the Assyrians out and waste their land. Verse 7. Then the remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many peoples, like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass that tarry for no man, nor wait for the sons of men. Right. One of the things that happens is I understand in times. I haven't studied this in a while, so I'm doing it off the top of my head, so if Tom wants to correct me, I might be corrected. Tom is a better student of that than I am. Yeshua comes back. He comes up from Basra and slaughters his way up to Jerusalem. In that process, he dispossesses the people who are there and sets up his millennial reign. At the end of the thousand years, Satan is released and the nations are talked into rising up against the Messiah and we have the war of Armageddon. So when Yeshua comes back, his taking over is not going to be peaceful. So this very well could be as the millennial reign is starting. And the reason I think that is because then the remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many peoples like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass. In other words, Israelites are going to be scattered out all over the world and they're going to be a blessing. That's the sense of that. Dew and showers are blessings. So the idea then is Yeshua comes back, he reestablishes control or establishes control 
for the kingdom of God, if you will. And then Hebrews go out and are a blessing to the whole world like dew and showers. As I say, that's what makes sense to me. With my limited understanding of end time stuff, I am not really a prophecy buff. I've read it all and so forth, but it isn't something that I spend a lot of time studying. I've got enough trouble studying the stuff I do understand. We're all the way down now to verse 8. And the remnant of Jacob shall be among the Gentiles in the midst of many peoples, like a lion among the beasts of the forest, like a young lion among flocks of sheep, who if he passes through both treads down and tears in pieces and none can deliver. So there's sort of two images there. The first image is you've got the remnant of Jacob uh, that are going to be like dew to the nations. You've then got the remnant of Jacob that are going to be like young lions in the must of a flock of sheep. So what that tells me is two things. One, the blessing part of that is a fulfillment of the prophecy given to Abraham in Genesis, Genesis 12. When Abraham is called out of Ur of the Chaldeans, God promises that his descendants will be a blessing. Verse 7 is the fulfillment of that promise. Then verse 8 is, I am suggesting to you part of the millennial reign where it says Yeshua will rule them with a rod of iron. In other words, there are going to be people and nations who are not going to be happy with Yeshua's ruling and reigning. What this says to me is that the remnant of Jacob that is going to be throughout the whole world is not going to care whether they're happy with it. So all the way down to verse 9. Your hand shall be lifted against your adversaries and all your enemies shall be cut off. So that goes with the lion and the young lion among the nations. They are going to be ruled under the ultimate leadership of the Messiah, but the remnant of Jacob is going to be the ones that are actually on site doing stuff. And for those who accept the rule, they will be like dew from heaven, and for those that don't, they will be like a lion among flocks of sheep. That last part's a guess. It's genealogy. It's not scripture. But both things are going on here. Verse 10. And it shall be in that day, says the Lord, that I will cut off your horses from your midst and destroy your chariots. Now, what's going on here, one of the songs that we sing is nations will not study war anymore. And one of the things that Israel depends on is their military. And they have got a very good military and they depend on that to keep them safe from the surrounding people who would rather they weren't there. So as I'm seeing this, there's going to be a bunch of things happening between now and the end of the chapter. And I am reading that as you guys are trusting in stuff besides God. That's all going to change because I'm going to take away from you all of the other stuff you trust in. That's sort of the way I read that. So let's go through it with that thought in mind, and then you can argue with me if you like. And it shall be in that day, says the Lord, that I will cut off your horses from your midst 
and destroy your chariots, which is obviously emblematic of military power. Verse 11, I will cut off the cities of your land and throw down all your strongholds. In other words, I'm going to take down your fortifications. I will cut off sorcerers from your land, and you shall have no soothsayers. And again, sorcerers and soothsayers are expressly forbidden in the Torah. So the idea there is they have come to depend on something besides God for their access to the spiritual world. Verse 13, your carved images I will also cut off, and your sacred pillars from your midst. You shall no more worship the work of your hands. I will pluck your wooden images from your midst, and I will destroy your cities, and I will execute vengeance in anger and fury on the nations that have not heard. So judgment begins in the house of the Lord, right, and goes out from there. So one of the things he's going to do is clean house in Israel, and then he is going to execute vengeance in anger and fury on the nations that have not. And the word here is heard, and I suspect the word is heeded, obeyed, those that didn't listen when they were given the opportunity. I don't think it is those nations to whom the gospel has not traveled. And I'll do this real quick. One of the things that all of Christian radio and TV does is say, give to us so that the gospel can go to the whole world, with the implication being, as soon as the gospel goes to the whole world, Yeshua's coming back. And I am not speaking against Christian radio or Christian television, or Yeshua coming back. I'm not speaking against that, but what I'm saying is, God is not going to leave that up to Christian radio. I'm very serious because in Revelation what you have is a strong angel that goes throughout the whole earth and speaks the gospel. And that's going to be the event that once that is done, it is, all right, everybody has heard. Nobody can say they don't know. So now when he comes back, those who didn't pay attention are fair game as opposed to those who were ignorant. And as I say, I am not speaking against Christian radio. I'm not speaking against Christian TV. I'm simply saying God isn't depending on us to get that done. So chapter 6. Hear now what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains. Let the hills hear your voice. Hear, O you mountains, the Lord's complaint and you strong foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a complaint against his people, and he will contend with Israel. Now, notice that we have a shift in speaker here. So it starts off, what the Lord says, okay? Arise, plead your case before the mountains. That's not talking about the Lord, that is talking about Israel. And then it says, hear, O mountains, the Lord's complaint. You see the shift in who's being talked to there. So going back to, for example, Job, when God is talking, he says, state your case. And Job says, I wish there was a court where I could go to state my case. I can't do it. So here it's saying to Israel, arise and plead your case before the mountain. And then God says, hear, O mountains, the Lord's complaint. And the Lord is complaining about his people. And he will contend with Israel. Verse 3. 
O my people, what have I done to you? And how have I wearied you? This is very much in the same vein as Adam, where are you? In Genesis 3, when he ate of the forbidden fruit and the Lord is walking and says, Adam, where are you? It's that same kind of a thing. What have I done to you? O my people, what have I done to you? And how have I worried you? Testify against me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt. I redeemed you from the house of bondage. And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. O my people, remember now what Balak, the king of Moab, counseled. And what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him. From Acacia Grove to Gilgal, that you may know the righteousness of the Lord. So what he's saying is, I have done everything possible for you. And if you don't think so, by all means, pipe up and tell me what I've missed. The question is, I've done everything I know to do for you. And then he lists some things that he has done, but it's all in in the spirit of, what's your problem? And by the way, all of this is that you may know the righteousness of the Lord. He has picked Israel. He has shepherded Israel. He has made a covenant with Israel. And the whole purpose of that is so that Israel and the world may know of his righteousness. And by the way, we are very much talking about righteousness here, not grace. So he has treated Israel both with righteousness and with grace. And right now he is ticked with them. So he's not talking about grace. He's talking about righteousness. Verse 6. With what shall I come before the Lord? Now notice we've shifted pronouns again. 3, 4, and 5 were God speaking to the witnesses, which are the mountains and the roots of the earth. Now it is switched. Verse 6. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the Most High? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams? 10,000 rivers of oil. Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? I take this as God is bringing Israel before witnesses and saying, lay out your case, I will lay out my case. And he lays out his case in 3, 4, and 5. The prophet then turns around and talks to Israel. Israel is not talking, it's the prophet talking to Israel. Unpacking this is sometimes a bit difficult. So the the rhetorical question is, with what shall I come before the Lord? Burnt offerings, calves a year old, thousands of ram, 10,000 rivers of oil. And how about if I do a little child sacrifice and kill my firstborn? Will that be enough? That's the question. And by the way, Israel has done all of those things. That's the reason they're going into exile. So now verse 8. He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God? So you have this rhetorical question where the prophet asks about the efficacy of all of these grandiose gestures. Rivers of oil, thousands of ram, 
those kinds of things. All this grandiose stuff to honor God, and the prophet is saying that is not what God is looking for. What he is looking for is someone who does justly, loves mercy, and walks humbly with God. That's what he's looking for. Yeshua says something very similar when he dukes it out with the Pharisees, where they're standing upon their ceremonial righteousness, and he's looking at their hearts and saying, your ceremonial righteousness is insufficient. That isn't actually what I'm looking for. And it's important to understand that the ceremonial righteousness is not nothing. Doing the ceremonial righteousness with a proper heart attitude is pleasing. In fact, it's commanded in the Torah. Doing the ceremonial righteousness while you have an unjust and corrupt society is not pleasing to God. That's where humans always get screwed up. We do, everybody does. We think that if we do the exact stuff that's commanded, it'll be okay. And God says, yeah, 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 I want you to do the commanded stuff, but I really want you to have the proper attitude while you do it. So let's unpack that. First one is do justly. That is action. What I want you to do is behave with justice towards your fellow man. That's behavior. The second one is to love mercy. Now, notice the difference in verbs. One is do, the other one is love. So do justice, but love mercy. And Yeshua says the same thing, for example, where he says, love your enemies. What good is it if you just love your friends? Even sinners do that. No, what I'm requiring of you is to love, the word there is hased, which is mercy, which is grace, which is loving kindness. In fact, it's untranslatable in English. It has to be explained. It cannot be translated. And what he says is, I want you to love that. I want you to do justice, but love the mercy. And then... Walk humbly with your God. The idea here is with walking, you are walking with God, which is to say you are walking in a path that God approves of. So if you're walking along and you're heading off this way and God's going that way, you're not walking with him. You only walk with him when you're going in the same direction on the same path that he's on. And so the idea here is Your actions are important. In other words, I want you to treat each other with justice. But justice by itself can be cold and harsh. So I want you to love said that. So that when you do justice, your justice is tempered and is in fact appropriate to the situation. And then finally, I want your feet to be on the path that I have set before you, and I will walk with you when you do. Let us shine.